You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. On Sunday mornings, right now we are studying through the book of Acts. We're doing a series right now titled Revolution. And in this series we're going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. We're looking at the great things that God did at that time in those early days of Christianity. And at the same time we're considering the great things that God wants to do in and through us here in our generation. As, as we now carry this baton as it's been passed to us. Now what is our role in living out that legacy in our generation? So would you please bow your heads with me and pray as we get into God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the glory and the promise and the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would make the gospel come alive in our hearts anew, that we would see it as we read these pages, Lord, that you would speak into areas of our lives that need to be touched and, and addressed, Lord, either for encouragement or some of us for challenging. And Lord, we just ask that you would have your way in this place, that you would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. In our study last week, you know, we've been going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. In our study last week, we met a man named Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman centurion, and we read about how Cornelius and his family came to believe the gospel, and they became disciples of Jesus. And what is really significant about Cornelius and his family is that they were the first ever non-Jewish Christians. Now, Christianity hadn't been invented like a couple months ago. I mean, Jesus has, had walked the earth some 10 years years before this or maybe even more but but now we see first the first ever non-Jewish Christians now obviously that was a big deal because if you remember back to the beginning of the book of Acts or, or even if you weren't with us but you know the story you know that Jesus had told his disciples he had commissioned them to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations Jesus had told them that the gospel was good news of great joy for all people but there were two reasons really why, in spite of what Jesus had told them, the early Christians, you know, without exception were Jewish, and why Christianity stayed Jewish for as long as it did. The first reason is there, was cultural, uh, there were cultural assumptions about religion and belief, even some assumptions that are still present in our day and age. The second thing was that there was entrenched prejudice. So first of all, there were cultural assumptions about religion and belief. In the ancient world, it was generally assumed that each nationality had their own gods and their own religions. The Romans had Roman gods and the Egyptians followed an Egyptian religion. The Syrians had Syrian gods and the Jews, of course, had a Jewish god. And it was generally thought that whatever family you're born in, that determined not only your nationality and ethnicity, but along with that also came your religion. And so the assumption was that you don't get to choose what you believe. That's something you inherit. It's not something you choose. You inherit it at birth and that's just the way it is. So you better accept whatever you're born in into and you better learn to love it. And so this, this cultural assumption was one of the reasons why Christian, uh, Jewish Christians were hesitant to take the gospel to non-Jewish people. Because for them, you know, Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. He was the Jewish Messiah and the thinking went something like this among some people. Who am I to go and tell all these other people out there who have their own religions, they believe in their own gods, who am I to tell them that their religions are wrong? Who am I to say that they need to forsake those religions and believe in my religion? 
Uh, Wouldn't that be a bit presumptuous to say that all people everywhere need to stop believing whatever they have been and they need to believe what I believe in order to be saved? Now, how many of you have heard similar sentiments in our day and age, right? Even from other Christians. This is a similar cultural assumption that exists in our day and age about religion and belief that existed at that time as well. And what's, what's interesting about the Roman Empire is that in a day and age when there was a lot of, you know, um, a lot of people lived, they didn't move around very much. What's interesting is that the Roman Empire was a, what we call a pluralistic society, which meant that people of different cultures, ethnicities, and religions lived together in one space, very much like our own society, where we have, you know, different ethnicities, different religions, people all living in the same society. And what happens sometimes in pluralistic society, happened at that time, and it happens in our day, is that people say things like this. They say, isn't it presumptuous to think that Jesus is the one and only way and everyone in the world needs to put their faith in him in order to be saved. What about one billion Hindus out there? What about, you know, several billion Muslims? We can't just tell them, hey, you know, this is what we believe and you need to believe it. Why can't we all just say, you believe this, I believe that, and, and at least we're all trying to be good people, right? Why should we say that people need to believe what we believe in order to be saved. Now there's a very good answer to that and it's simple logic and we're going to discuss it as we go on especially even today but especially in the coming weeks. Um, But my point is just to say this, that same thinking that exists today in our society, it existed at that time and it was one of the reasons why some Jewish Christians were not eager to take the gospel out and spread it beyond Jewish people. Another thing which kept Christianity Jewish in the early years of Christianity was entrenched prejudice. The Jewish people had a major case of cultural pride and a sense of superiority over other nations. They really did believe that they were the master race. They thought of other races as brutish, unenlightened, ignorant, and unclean. And they, of course, were the ones who had the knowledge of God, and so they looked down their noses at other people. Now, these two factors were what kept Christianity Jewish uh, for as long as it did, despite Jesus' instructions otherwise. So the question is, how did that change? And that's what we're studying about here in this part of the book of Acts. How did Christianity go from being a purely Jewish movement to being a movement which spanned borders and swept the world and became a faith for all nations? That's what our text is dealing with today. The title of today's message is, Let the Nations Be Glad. You know, there are two things for us to look at and consider as we're going to be looking here at Acts chapter 11. The first is, in the first half of the chapter, we're going to be talking about changing your mind. In the second half of the chapter, we're going to be talking about and seeing a new kind of community. So let's begin by looking at changing your mind. Read with me, if you would, from verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were scandalized by this news that Peter had entered the house of a Gentile and he had had the audacity to even eat a meal with them. Because you got to understand, in their minds, Gentiles were ungodly, they were unclean, there was nothing redeemable about them whatsoever. And therefore, if you were a person who loved God and who walked with God, then you should have no contact with those ungodly, unclean people, lest they contaminate you with their uncleanness. 
And in ancient cultures, sharing a meal was considered one of the most intimate things you could do with a person. Because as you both partake of that same food, that one food becomes part of both of you. It's a very intimate thing that unites you. And by the way, this is one of the aspects of the Lord's Supper, the communion meal that we partake in every Sunday here at Whitefields. It's done in remembrance of what Jesus did for us. It's done as a vivid symbol through which we say, we declare, I am receiving Jesus. Jesus' sacrificial death on my behalf. I'm taking it into myself. And it's a symbol also, furthermore, of the unity that we share as a community of believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, as the Bible calls us the body of Christ. So anyway, this was scandalous what Peter had done, especially for these people. In the minds of Jewish Christians, what Peter had done was essentially compromised. He had compromised his convictions and his beliefs. He had associated with unclean people. It was totally unbecoming and inappropriate in their minds, and he had probably been contaminated by them in the process. This is how Jewish people generally thought about Gentiles, anybody who wasn't Jewish. In fact, Peter himself had thought this way at one time. So the question is, how did Peter come to change his mind about Gentiles? And that's the story that he's going to tell now. Read with me from verse 4. We're going to read a big chunk here. Peter began and explained it to them in order. And what he's going to do right now is he's going to recount the very things that we read about in our story last week, but it's a little bit of a summarized version. Verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. This is what I like to call pigs in a blanket. Verse 7, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered, answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call unclean. This happened three times and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea, and the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who's called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. And I began to, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as with us in the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God then gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I should stand in God's way? There were two deeply held convictions that Jewish Christians had about Gentiles, the Jews in general, but also Jewish Christians had about Gentiles. The first was this, they were unclean and they were to be avoided at all costs. And second was this, if by chance they did want to be Christians, they could, but first they would have to become Jews, which meant a lot of other things, right? It mean men need to be circumcised, they all need to keep a kosher diet, it means ritual cleansing, keeping the Sabbath, celebrating. Celebrating Jewish festivals and holidays. And Peter had these same convictions and beliefs himself. But something had happened, which we read about here, which had caused Peter to change his mind and change his thinking. And I think it's important for us to consider how Peter's mind was changed and, and how we're going to see these men who contended with him, how their minds were also changed because, uh, because of this. God is wanting to teach us to 
change us, to change our thinking, our attitudes, to bring our attitudes into harmony, into line with his thinking uh, about things and about people. And, and it's also important for us to consider this in another way in regard to how we might be able to share our deepest faith convictions, our deepest beliefs with other people that they might also change their minds about God and change their minds about who Jesus is. So there are three aspects of changing your mind that I'd like to show you here in this story. The first is this, a testimony. Then we're going to see a disturbing event. And then we're going to see the word of God. So first of all, notice this. Peter begins by telling them a story. A, a testimony, you might call it. One of the most and best effective ways that, that you'll see that you can have a conversation with other people about your faith and your beliefs and deeply held convictions is this. Don't just talk about what you believe, but tell them how you came to believe it. You see what I'm saying? Don't just talk about the content of what you believe, but tell them about the process, the process that you went on, the journey that you went on through which you came to believe what you believe. Every one of us who is a Christian, we have a story of how we came to believe. Maybe you were not at all a Christian, but through a series of events, your thinking changed and you came to be a believer in Jesus. Or maybe, on the other hand, maybe you were raised in church, but yet there was a time in your life through a process, through a series of events, that you came to really believe the gospel truly and personally. Either way, each of us has a story to tell of how we came to change our minds about Jesus. Or even beyond that, many of you have stories to tell of things that you have experienced that have solidified your beliefs about God. If you remember back to the first book, or back to the first chapter of the book of Acts, this is exactly what Jesus called his followers to do. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and then you will be my witnesses in all the earth, you know, starting here at home in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, think about that. What does a witness do? I was asked to be a witness in a court trial a few years ago, and, uh, and so they, you know, summoned me, and they brought me in, and I stood there, and I had to tell my story. They asked me, so what happened? And so I just told them, well, this is what I saw. Interestingly, they didn't argue with me. They just asked me to tell my story, and then they let me go. And that's what it's like to be a witness. Each and every one of you has a story to share of how God has worked in your life, how you came to hold the deeply held convictions that you hold, and how God has worked in your life to change your previously held thinking about various things. And there's a sense in which I believe that if you have a story to tell, especially a story that brings glory to God, that helps people to change their mind about God, there's in a way a solemn duty that you have to share that story. I, I love what David says in 1 Chronicles 16. Here's just a, a portion of what he says in 1 Chronicles 16. He says this, Give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, and make known... That's the key. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, the judgments he uttered, and tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the people. Do you get the recurring theme in what David's saying? He's saying, tell, share, declare, share those stories that you have of how God has worked in your life, the things that you've seen and experienced. You know, stories are important, and each and every one of you has a a story to tell. 
And this is one of the reasons why we believe here at this church that Christians need community, that you need community. We don't just want to be community church in name. We want to be an actual community. We believe that you and I, we need to be with other Christians intentionally so that we can hear their stories, so that we can share our stories, so that we can be encouraged and grow. And so I do encourage you, if you have not yet, to get involved in a community group. Um, First of all, so we see a testimony. Peter doesn't just tell them what he believes. He tells them how he came to believe what he believes. And the way Peter came to change his mind, his assumptions, and his convictions was through a series of disturbing events. The first was this disturbing event he had, this vision of the pigs in a blanket that he, an observant Jew, was being told to eat something unkosher by God, it seemed like. And, And what Peter came to understand was that this vision wasn't even really about food. This vision was actually about people. And the point was, if God had made Peter clean, well, then God could also make the filthiest, rottenest Gentile clean too, couldn't he? You see, this really is the message of the gospel, that anyone, no matter what is in your past, no matter what is in the past week even, you can come to Jesus, you can be clean, you can be forgiven, and you can be made right with God. Not because you're such a good person and a perfect person, but because of what Jesus did for you on your behalf. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of grace. So as Peter recounts this, he he says, man, it was hard for me at first because I was like, I've never eaten kosher food, but God seems to keep telling me that if he's made it clean, then it's okay. So then there was another disturbing event. Peter goes to the house of these Gentiles. He starts talking to them about Jesus, but before he's even finished talking, they interrupt him and they've believed already the gospel and they've received the Holy Spirit. You see, they received the Holy Spirit before he was able to tell them that they needed to be circumcised, before he had the chance to tell them they needed to clean their houses out of unkosher food, before any of that. And that went completely against Peter's paradigm, his understanding of how things are supposed to work. I'm sure that Peter had planned to tell them all, you know, hey, okay, here's all the stuff you're going to need to do. Let me write you a long list. I'll, I'll print it out for you so that you don't get anything wrong, right? There's a lot of stuff to do. But before he even had the chance to do that, while he's still speaking, they believe the gospel and they have this outward evidence of the Holy Spirit. And while that, when that happened, Peter was very puzzled, as you can imagine. Because here's what happened. That didn't fit with how he thought things were supposed to work. There's a famous book by a man named Thomas Kuhn. And it's, the title is The Nature of Scientific Revolutions. And, and this, in this book, what he talks about is this, how major scientific breakthroughs have taken place throughout history. And here's what he says. It's very interesting. You know, we all tend to think that, yes, we're all very uh, objective people and uh, we're very open-minded, but... Thomas Kuhn says, no, not at all. That's not the case. Uh, We are not. Instead, every person has what he calls an interpretive grid. Basically, these are your basic assumptions through which you explain everything, through which you understand everything around you. And whenever any kind of new information or data comes into your life, you try to explain it by trying to fit it in with what you already believe. But sometimes what happens is that we're confronted with things that don't fit They don't fit in our grid. We have no way to account for them. We have no way to explain them because they don't fit with our assumptions of how we think things are supposed to work. And when that happens, it causes us to question the grid itself. 
For example, for hundreds of years, people assumed that the earth was the center of the universe and everything revolved around the earth because it seemed like we're standing still and the stars are moving. But then people noticed something that didn't fit with that assumption. They noticed that the stars don't move straight across the sky. They actually move in kind of a zigzag pattern. And so they began to question, well, maybe our assumption was wrong. And they began to look for a new explanation. And that's what happens. When things happen, disturbing events, something comes into your life and disrupts you, which you have no way to explain or account for, and it doesn't fit with your previously held assumptions about how things are supposed to work, those are the most teachable moments of your life. Those are the watershed moments. Those are the turning points where we are suddenly open to and looking for new explanations and new ideas. For example, a person who doesn't believe in God, but then something happens in their life which they cannot explain, and they begin to think, well, I don't know, I guess there's no way, maybe I was wrong, maybe I was wrong, maybe there actually is a God. Throughout the Bible, you read these stories of how when people encountered God, oftentimes there was a disturbing event, something they couldn't explain. You know, Moses is there, and there's a burning bush, and it's not burned up, and it just doesn't make any sense, and so he goes over and looks at it, right? Saul of Tarsus, he's on the road to Damascus, adamantly opposed to Christianity, not at all a believer in Jesus Christ whatsoever, but then something happens. He gets knocked down on his back, and there's a voice speaking to him saying, hey, It's me, Jesus, you know, the guy you don't believe in. This is me, and it's time for you to cut it out, Saul. You've been resisting me, and I want you to stop that. I have a plan for your life. You see, when you don't believe in Jesus, but then Jesus knocks you down and speaks to you, you have to kind of reassess your assumptions about Jesus. You have to reevaluate. And this is one of the things also that helps us grow as believers, these disturbing events that shake up our assumptions, um, that reveal the flaws in our assumptions. It makes us reassess and rethink things. I remember, for example, one man talking about how he had grown up thinking that if he was, you know, perfect, if he did everything right, if he kept all the rules, then he would earn God's favor and God would reward him because God rewards the people who keep all the rules and he doesn't reward the people who don't keep the rules. But then he noticed something very disturbing, something that didn't fit with his assumption. And that was that other people who didn't keep the rules as well as he did, who were less deserving in his opinion, good things happened to them that didn't happen to him. And he was very disturbed by that and he thought, you know, this isn't fair and this isn't how things are supposed to work. It's just not right. But it was through this disturbing experience, this man says, that he turned to the word of God and he came to realize something he hadn't understood before. And that was the grace of God. The grace of God that none of us actually deserves anything from God. But it's not that we can earn things from God, but everything we have from God is purely by his grace. It is undeserved favor. Another example, in the book of Job, The people in that day held an assumption, which is also commonly held in our day, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. If you're good, good will follow you. If you're bad, bad is going to come and you'll get paid back for it. But then here's Job, and he doesn't fit with that, does he? Right, because here he is, he's, he's a good person, he's a godly person, and yet he experiences Terrible things, tragic loss, the death of his children, all of his wealth is lost. And and of course, his friends come around operating from this assumption that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And they say, hey, everybody knows, Job, that 
this is how it works. And so you must have some skeletons in your closet. There must be some things about you that you're not telling us. Otherwise, these bad things wouldn't be happening to you. And Job comes back and pleads his own case. And he says, no, 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 really. I promise you, I don't have any skeletons in my closet. I really am a good person. Really, you've got to believe me. And Job says, e- even me, I- that's why I'm so confused. God, why are you letting this happen to me? I- I'm a good person. I love you, God. Th- that's not how it should work. Good things should happen to me because I'm a good person and I love God. And then this goes back and forth, you know, Job and his friends and Job calling out to God until finally God uh, speaks up and he says, hey guys, um, you failed to take into account one important factor and that's that I'm God and you're not and I'm sovereign and sometimes I do things that you don't understand and I don't particularly feel obligated to always tell you why I do what I do because I'm God. And he says, you know what, this didn't happen because of something that Job did wrong. God says, I let this happen for a reason, and I'm still not going to tell you what that reason was. You see, what had happened to Job was completely outside of the box of how they assumed that things were supposed to work. And it revealed the the flaws, the faulty assumptions they had about God. And ultimately, it helped them, and now down the line, it helps us to grow and mature in our understanding. Now, I wonder how many of you, you could tell your own stories about events in your life that shook you up and challenged your previously held assumptions about God, and God used those things to change your mind or to teach you. So on this topic of how do people and how do we get to the point of changing our minds in regard to the things of God, how do we grow, how do we learn, one way that we see, we saw in the beginning, is through personal testimonies of how God has worked in someone's life. Another way is through experiencing events and experiences and getting new information that challenges us and reveals the flaws in our previously held assumptions. But there's a third way that we see in this chapter that change takes place in our minds, and that's this, through the word of God. In verse 16, I love this phrase, it says this incredible phrase, verse 16, Peter says, all this stuff happened, but then I remembered the word of the Lord. Then I remembered the word of the Lord. People, Peter took all these things that he had experienced, all these things that he had heard, and he came to the word of God to see what God's word really had to say about it. And that's when Peter became convinced that this was what God wanted. And let me tell you, let that same thing be true of us. You may hear lots of stories of, of personal testimonies. You may have experiences that challenge your thinking. But ultimately, in the end, what we must always do is measure everything back again the word of God. Peter remembered something Jesus had said, that Jesus said that he would baptize his followers, his believers in the gospel, he'd baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And so now his conclusion is, if the Gentiles have received the Holy Spirit, they've believed the gospel, that God's accepted them, so we should too. Now let me say this, not only They not only had the word of the Lord from Jesus about the Gentiles, but they also had the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament full of messages of God's love, God's plan to redeem all people of all nations. The Old Testament is full of these promises of of God one day sending someone, a Messiah, a Savior for all people, not only for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. God had promised Abraham way back in the beginning, remember? He said that through your descendants, 
all people of the earth, all nations of the earth will be blessed. The psalmist, we read this this morning in our call to worship. He says, let, he looks forward to the day of the Messiah and he says, let the nations be glad. Let the earth rejoice for your salvation has come to all nations of the earth. You see, these events that Peter experienced, they caused him to question his assumptions, but it was when he turned to the word of God that he realized that it had always been there all along that God intended to save all people through Jesus Christ. It wasn't a new thing. It it was just something that he had been blind to because of cultural assumptions and deep-rooted prejudice in his heart. And now the word of God, Peter's beginning to shed those things and come to understand the gospel for all people. And look how this section concludes. I like this in verse 18 we read. When they, that's the people who criticized Peter and contended with him, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, And to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. In the beginning of the chapter, remember, these people were criticizing Peter. They were contending with him. And now he explains and they sit there and it says they're completely silent. And then they begin to glorify God and rejoice. Earlier, they couldn't even conceive of how Peter could even think of doing something like this, going to the Gentiles. But now they've done a complete 180. They're rejoicing that God has brought the Gentiles into his kingdom and that they're brothers and sisters too. And I think we need to give some big compliments to these people who contended with Peter. And here's why. Because you know what this shows about them, what we see here in verse 18? It shows something wonderful, something that's unfortunately too rare, that these people were willing to have their minds changed and corrected by the word of God. Let me ask you, when was the last time you allowed yourself to be persuaded by the word of God? That you allowed your mind to be changed because you were persuaded by the word of God. When, when like these men, you allowed yourself to be persuaded in, in your attitude, that your attitude was wrong, that you had been incorrect about something as you came to the word of God and you allowed yourself to be persuaded, your mind to be changed, and you did a complete 180. That's what these men did. They heard Peter's testimony. They heard about the disturbing events. And they heard their minds were changed when they heard the word of God. And these three factors, I think, are very important for us to consider as well. Both as we consider how God wants to change our thinking and and teach us, but also how we consider how we might be able to share our faith and deepest beliefs with other people. That their mind might be changed about who God is and who Jesus Christ is too. The next thing we see in the second half of this chapter is a new community. Please read with me from verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, or the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people turned to the Lord. Now we've already heard about these Christian refugees who fled the persecution because of the events we read back in chapter 7 with Stephen, the first Christian martyr. There was this great persecution in Jerusalem. A lot of people fled, uh, the, fled into the countryside. And uh, as they went, these Christians went, uh, Christianity spread as they told people about Jesus and it spread into the communities of Judea and Samaria and even to the Jews of Ethiopia and Damascus. We've already seen that. But now we're reading about something else, something different that happened. Some of these Christian refugees were Jewish 
ethnically, but they had grown up in different parts of the Roman Empire. Some were from Cyprus, the island, you know, next to Greece, and some were from Cyrene, which is present-day Libya. These are people who spoke Greek, and when they came to the city of Antioch, we read that they began speaking to the Greek people who were there and telling them about Jesus too. And many of these Greek people started to believe and embrace the gospel. Let's read what happened in verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. What we're reading about here is the beginning of the very first non-Jewish Christian church. And that's a great theme of these couple chapters that we're looking at here. It's telling us the story of how Christianity shed its Jewish clothing and became a faith for all nations, which is what God had always intended it to be. In Caesarea, we see the very first non-Jewish Christians, and now in Antioch, we see the very first non-Jewish Christian church. This was a new kind of community. And man, let me tell you, I wish that I could have been there and been a part of this church in Antioch because there were some very exciting things that were happening at this place. There are three wonderful aspects of the Christian church in Antioch that are worth taking note of because they embody God's vision for what all Christian communities should be. Here's what they are. They were a redemptive community, they were a compelling community, and they were a compassionate community. We'll go through these now. A redemptive community, it's really interesting to know more about the city of Antioch. Did you know that Antioch was the third largest city of the Roman Empire? It was the Chicago of the Roman Empire, right? After Rome and Alexandria, you've got Antioch. And its population numbered in the hundreds of thousands, which meant that it would have been a big city even by today's standards. In fact, historians have said that the population density of Antioch was greater than that of New York City and you know, in New York City, people live in high-rise buildings. In Antioch, they didn't. So really, people were just packed in. This was a large urban environment with people packed in, living in close proximity to each other. Furthermore, Antioch was unique among cities in the ancient world because it was a multicultural city. It had been founded as a place of commerce and business. And because of that, and because of where it was located, many people moved there from other cultures and other places. And so the population of Antioch was a mixture of Greeks, Syrians, Arabs, Jews, as well as Africans and even Chinese. But Antioch, even though it was multicultural, it was far from being a multicultural utopia where everybody got along. One of the most interesting things about Antioch is that in addition to having an outer wall which protected the city from outside forces attacking them, Antioch was also built with inner walls. Within, that, uh, within the outer walls, they had inner walls within the city which separated the city into different ethnic groups to protect the different ethnic groups from each other. Because what would happen, you can imagine, it happens even in our day. Two people from different ethnic groups get in a scuffle and soon you have entire ethnic groups pitted against each other and warring against one another. And this was such a problem in the city of Antioch that they had to build walls to protect the people, not from outside forces, but to protect the people from each other. That's how much ethnic strife existed in this city. 
And so here's what's happening. As Christianity comes into Antioch, Christianity is breaking through those barriers. People begin to unite in this very divided city. First, we see here that there were Jews and there were Greeks together in one church. Later on in chapter 13, we're going to see that there were people from you know, sub-Saharan Africa there and people from other parts of the Roman Empire. This was a multicultural church. And as this was happening, people were crossing the established barriers that you don't cross, right, in the city. They were, they were crossing those barriers to meet together and worship Jesus. This was a redemptive community. The love of God, the power of the gospel was breaking down strife, breaking down bad blood between people. Forgiveness, reconciliation was taking place as people realized that God loved them and God had forgiven them and they began doing the same. It was a redemptive community. They embodied the kinds of things that God loves and cares about. And that is what God desires every Christian community to be. A community which embodies and lives out the things that he loves and cares about. A community that champions forgiveness, caring for those in need, speaking the truth in love, breaking down boundaries between people. That's the kind of community we want to be here at Whitefields. If you ever read in your bulletin, you'll notice we have this thing every single week about what our core values are. And one of those core values is we desire to be redemptive in the world. We want to be God's hands, God's feet, God's mouthpiece through which he can do his work and through which he can share his words. Here's another way that we see a redemptive community. Verse 25, I want to read this. Um, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. There's more work there than Barnabas has time to do. He can't handle it on his own, so he goes and he finds an old friend who's uh, been living in his parents' basement for several years now, Saul of Tarsus. You might remember this guy who at one time had persecuted the church, and then he had become himself a believer, but yet the believers were very hesitant to accept him and welcome him in. But Barnabas goes out and he finds Saul and he says, Saul, come with me. You're going to help me with this work in Antioch. And I love this because every time we see Barnabas, we see him as a generous, magnanimous person, willing and quick to extend forgiveness even when others weren't. This is the kind of Christian community that Barnabas fostered here in Antioch, a community that loved Jesus, that loved their fellow man, and extended grace and forgiveness to others. It was beautiful stuff, and I pray that our church would be that kind of gracious, redemptive community like the church in Antioch. Not only were they redemptive, but they were also compelling. Verse 26, it says, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Until now, these believers in Jesus have been called by many different names. They've been called disciples. They've been called followers of the way. They've been called believers and saints. They've even been called the sect of the Nazarenes. But here in Antioch, they get a new name, and it's a name which apparently has stuck for a little while. They're called Christians. And what that name means in that language, it, means, it just means that you're a little Christ. Right? And most scholars agree that probably when this term was first used, it was intended as a, as a form of mockery, as a way to insult them. But the Christians owned it. They said, we love that name. We take that as a compliment. Right after high school, I, I used to work in a snowboard shop. And my boss, this guy named Matt, he, uh, he's a Cuban guy, and he always used to call me 
Jesus. He'd be like, hey, Jesus, you know, and he knew that I was a Christian, and that's why he did that. And of course, he meant that as a way of mocking me. But I told him, man, that is the best compliment that you could ever give me. They were a compelling community. People took notice of them. They noticed that people from different groups of this divided city were crossing the established boundary lines and meeting together to talk about Jesus. It was odd. It was different. It was compelling. Now, you could say in one sense, in Antioch, the, Christians were, the, the believers were first called Christians by other people. But the other thing that we must see here in Antioch is that they were also first called Christians by themselves. And let me put it this way. They considered their identity as Christians to be their priority. They might have been African, Jewish, Syrian, Greek, but first they were Christians. They were part of a new tribe, a new nation that God was building from people from all over the world. People of different skin color and language bringing them together and making them one family. And I believe that identity is so important for us to have too. That our primary allegiance is to Jesus and our primary identity is that we are Christians first. You know, a big part of the vision for Whitefields as a community church is that we would be people who lay aside labels that unnecessarily divide people. You know, like I'm charismatic or I'm Catholic or I'm Methodist. Let's lay aside those labels and let's just be Christians together. How about that? Let's worship God and study his word and get back to the heart of what it means to follow Jesus together and be Christians first. Let's be called Christians first. That was a compelling community. It stood out and others couldn't help but notice it and be drawn to it. And finally, we'll finish here, verse 27. We see a compassionate community. Now in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem and to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And as they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is what happens when the gospel takes root in your heart. Rather than being a self-absorbed person, you become a compassionate person. Rather than being a small, stingy person, you become a big-hearted, generous person. Because the message of the gospel is that God thought of you rather than himself. That God didn't hold back anything from you. He was generous to the point of giving everything. He gave it all away. And you come to this point of seeing that imitating God in those ways leads to true and lasting happiness. It leads to deep-rooted joy and purpose. They were a compassionate community, not only concerned with what was going on in their church, but looking out beyond their church to how God might want to use them in the world to do his work. And that's another essential aspect of what God desires us to be as a Christian community and something that we want to be as a church as well. So here's where all that brings us in, in conclusion. The gospel, the, the message of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, it's a message that is good news of great joy for all people. For all people, for those who are near and for those who are afar off. Now, I don't know which one of those categories you feel yourself in this morning. Maybe today you feel that you're particularly near to God, or maybe today you're feeling especially far off or distant from God. Maybe because of something that happened to you during this week, something you did. Uh, and nobody sitting around you might even know about it, but you do. And because of that, you feel afar off from God. Maybe this, on the other hand, maybe it's been the best week of your life and you feel close to God. But wherever you are and whoever you are, wherever you stand with God today, the gospel message is good news of great joy for you. 
For you who are near, it's good news. God loves you. Jesus died for you. Your sins are forgiven. You have nothing to fear in life or even in death because if God is for you, then who can be against you? And you can have confidence that he's working all things for your good and for his glory until the day when you'll see him face to face. And for those who feel afar off today, the gospel is good news of great joy for you. It's not your merits by which God deals with you. His love is greater than your sin, your failings. His blood is stronger than your sins. Jesus came to take your place and to make you clean so you who are far off from God can be brought near. Rejoice in that. Receive the gospel today. And by the grace of God, may we be people who are receptive to the word of God, who allow it to persuade us and change our minds where necessary. And may we become the kind of community that brings people closer to God and acts as his hands and feet and mouthpiece in the world. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this community that we see here in Antioch. Lord, this gospel community that brought people together and brought people to you. And Lord, may we be that kind of community. We, may we be like Peter and the, those people who, who were hearing Peter's story, whose minds were changed as they heard the word of God. May we be people, Lord, who do that same thing, who allow your, you to persuade us and to change us. And Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. And we bless you this day. We ask that as we go, we would go in the hope and the joy and the knowledge of the gospel of your love for us. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.